This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi all, welcome. Thanks to everybody for joining us from around the world for our final session of the Socialism 2020 Virtual Conference from Rebellion to Revolution. I'm Dana Blanchard, I work at Haymarket Books and I'm also part of the Socialism Organizing Committee. Before I introduce our tremendous speakers, I wanna thank the organizers of the Socialism Conference, Democratic Socialists of America, Haymarket Books, and Jacobin. Also a very special thank you to Verso, which has been incredibly supportive of the conference this year um, and it was streaming one of the sessions on their YouTube channel for us. So now to begin our program. The racist police murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Elijah McClain, and too many more have catalyzed a massive nationwide rebellion like nothing experienced in many of our lifetimes. The rebellions of this summer have achieved both immediate wins and faced harsh repression. Harsh, harsh repression, sorry. Um, we know these upsurges are not going away though because the causes of oppression and the roots of racism in this country are very deep. Our panel today will discuss how we build on the mass anger and mobilizations of the present rebellion to carry out a full-scale revolutionary transformation of our society. And so now, without further ado, I want to introduce our three speakers um, and then hand it over to them. Our first speaker will be Amelia Blair-Smith. Amelia is the co-chair of YDSA and a rising senior at Carleton College. She lives in rural Minnesota and has experience with campus organizing through her YDSA chapter and with community organizing through Cooperation Northfield, a group of young leftists that engage in political education, cooperatively owned businesses, and environmental direct action. She is pursuing a degree in Africana studies and is researching the successes and pitfalls of multiracial leftist student organizing. Amelia hopes to become a rank and file teacher. After that, we will have Jesse Hagopian. Jesse teaches ethnic studies and is the co-advisor to the Black Student Union at Garfield High School in Seattle, the site of the historic boycott of the MAP test in 2013. Jesse is an editor for the Social Justice, Social Justice Periodical Rethinking Schools, and he is the co-editor of the book Teaching for Black Lives. He is also the editor of the book, More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High Stakes Testing. Jesse serves as the director of the Black Education Matters Student Activist Award and is an organizer with the Black Lives Matter at School movement and is a founding member of Social Equity Educators in Seattle. And finally, we will have Karee Peterson-Smith. Karee is a socialist and researcher fighting for revolution in our lifetime. He is especially interested in Black internationalism, demilitarization, and decolonization. In 2015, he was one of the authors of the Black for Palestine Statement. The way this is going to work is the panelists will each give some opening remarks, and then we will have time for a group discussion amongst the speakers. So take it away, Amelia. 
talk about what my experience was like um, at the Minneapolis protests to start off with um, and give some political analysis of uh, the situation on the ground, how it developed and what demands have sort of come out of that. Um, so the first night I was involved was Wednesday, uh, which was the 27th of May, when there was a large crowd gathered at the third police precinct in southeast Minneapolis. Um, and that was known for the organic black working class energy um, that sort of burned the auto zone uh, that was across from the precinct. Um, we weren't able to get to the precinct because there were lots of threats of retaliation. Um, and the crowd dispersed um, a little bit before midnight. Um, and then Thursday, uh, the 28th, um, this was a time when I was pretty active at the third precinct um, with some of my comrades. And um, we waited there for a couple of hours protesting and standing outside of the precinct. Um, the police ended up abandoning the precinct um, and people were actually able to go inside to the precinct and take um, the guns, the materials, anything that was sort of left behind. Um, and then the precinct was uh, burned down. Um, and there was just a lot of support in the crowd that I was seeing from you know, the black working class people who lived in the neighborhood um, and also people who seemed like they weren't from the neighborhood. Um, I remember earlier in the night, um, some uh, woman sitting next to me was complaining that they weren't burning down the precinct fast enough. Um, so that was very uh, inspiring and moving to sort of see. Um, and then Friday, uh, the 29th of May, um, by then this are mostly focusing their energy on two things. Um, one is assisting at the newly um, established sanctuaries, um, one of which was in a fancy Sheridan hotel for a while, um, which is very amazing to see a uh, sort of luxury facility being converted into free uh, shelter for uh, working class, houseless people. Um, and uh, it's now been moved to a park. And the second thing people are focusing on is um, assisting in nightly defense of George Floyd Square, which is an autonomous zone set up in Southeast Minneapolis. Um, and then next point I really wanted to hit was about where I see DSA and YDSA building on this movement um, and what sort of the role of DSA and more especially YDSA is um, in the protests that have come out of the uprising in Minneapolis. So um, with Bernie Sanders dropping out and campuses suddenly closing um, because of the pandemic, many YDSA chapters were at sort of a loss of what to do next. Um, the wave of protests have definitely helped chapters to mobilize their membership um, in a way that they needed to do. Um, YDSA leaders are trying to turn the organic militant energy um, of students, of young people, of people of color um, into campaigns to cut ties between schools and police departments to ca with campaigns to defund campus police and campaigns to defund local police in order to reinvest in students and workers. Um, as young socialists, we understand the importance of embracing the movement to defund the police because it is fundamentally a redistributive demand. Um, YDSA leadership is working on this by running virtual workshops to teach students how to cut an issue um, and how to power map their campuses. 
Uh, we also have an amazing outreach team that reaches out to chapter leaders one-on-one to help them start campaigns. Um, and um, I've been a YDSA leader for um, a couple of years now. And I found that summers are largely an, kind of more of an inactive time for YDSA because of the constraints of the academic calendar. Um, but this year, it's been absolutely exciting to me to see um, the uh, like leadership of YDSA leaders across the country during the summer to start redistributive radical socialist campaigns without necessarily needing to organize in person. Um, then I want to sort of hit on the point of um, rebellion to revolution, which is the title of the talk. Um, and uh, about how I feel it's very important for young people to engage in the moment uh, for direct action. Uh, for example, being arrested or being shot at at a protest can be like a crucial experience in a young person's political radicalization. Um, but unfortunately, in many places of the country, that moment of rebellion has passed. So now what we must do is encourage young people um, across the country to turn their focus to redistributive campaigns like campaigns to defund the police. Um, in order for a revolution, we need to have an experienced body of competent young organizers who know how to organize and win campaigns that shift power to the working class. I truly believe that campus organizing should be a training ground for worker organizing. And I hope that all uh, members take the skills that they learn in YDSA and then apply them to their workplaces. Um, for example, through the rank and file strategy, uh, YDSA encourages young people to get jobs in industries that are essential to American capitalism, like healthcare, education, and logistics. Um, in addition, you know, from the most powerful Ivy League universities to public high schools, there are many key points of intervention for YDSA into the American capitalist mach uh, machine. So for most people, school is just one stage of your life. Uh, but I hope that the organizing lessons that young people learn in YDSA stick with them for a lifetime. Thank you. Right on. Thank you so much, Amelia. That was fire. <laughs> and <laughs> as you literally described the fires burning, you had uh, my heart soaring. So um, thank you for sharing your your story with us today. Um, and thanks to Haymarket for inviting me to be on this panel. You know, it's been a difficult year of remote teaching with the COVID-19 crisis. And this uprising for Black Lives right now has just been so healing for me personally. You know, getting emails from my students saying they hope to see me at the next protest um, and the, the energy they had for their final project, which was all about analyzing the uprising, was a great way to finish off the school year. And even though I think schools were shut down over the last few months, it made my heart sing to see my students, I think in the greatest classroom of all, in the streets, right, confronting police, demanding an end to hundreds of years of institutional racism. Um, and, you know, the youth are becoming, I think, the great teachers in our society today, right? And they are perhaps creating the greatest uh, lesson plan uh, ever written, 
right, for rebellion and hopefully on to revolution. And, you know, I think my students are clearly not alone. Youth all over the country, as you heard from Amelia, um, are rising up in what the New York Times just called the largest movement in history with over 550 different places in every single state in the United States protesting all at the same time uh, on June 6th. And I'm just so grateful to the abolitionists like Ruth Gilmore and Angela Davis and Miriam Kaba, who laid so much of the groundwork for this uprising um, and helped ensure that when young people did take the streets, when working people did take the streets, when, when BIPOC people have taken the streets, they took up the necessary and radical demands of defunding, disarming, and abolishing the police. Um, and I'm grateful for all of the, the Black Lives Matter activists out there that did this work in the hard years, right? When, when these ideas were marginalized and ridiculed, um, I'm grateful for all the educators and parents and students in the Black Lives Matter at School movement who are my comrades, um, who put forward radical demands, which were radical at the time for removing police from the schools. Um, and now we're claiming victories around those demands in city after city. I want to tell you about Seattle. Here in Seattle, we kicked the cops out of the schools, right? Students organized a, a petition. Within a couple days, 18,000 people had signed the petition to remove police from the schools. And we built a, a campaign along with that petition. We kicked the police out of their own damn precinct. <laughs> and then uh, incredible organizers launched the, the CHAZ or the CHOP, uh, a Capitol Hill occupied protest for a time until our liberal mayor did exactly what uh, Trump wanted her to do, which was to use the police um, to push out the, the protesters from around the the chop you know you can see that liberal politicians fall right in line with far right extremist white nationalists like trump when when it comes to questions of the police um but we also we we kicked the police out of the king county labor council and this to me was especially gratifying because i had endured uh a lot of ridicule and mockery for suggesting that the police were not part of the working class, that they had no business being in, in our movement, that you can imagine every single moment in the history of the labor movement, in the history of struggles for social justice, and just ask yourself, which side were the police on? Every single time. It doesn't matter if you were envisioning the, the fights for the eight-hour workday and the Haymarket Martyrs. It doesn't matter if you are envisioning uh, the Stonewall Rebellion and, and the uprising for LGBTQ plus liberation, or if you're thinking of Rosa Parks, whatever your favorite moment in making the world a better place is, you can find the police on the other side. And, and for raising that, uh, for a long time, I was marginalized. And, and now the entire King County Labor Council has said you have no business uh, being with the labor movement. So that was an incredible victory for us. And 
there's just so many other victories around the country, right? They kicked the police out of the Oakland public schools, right? They kicked the police out of the Denver public schools um, and on and on, right? Places are getting a funding cut for the police. And I just want to say uprisings get really get the goods, y'all. It's, it's the way it's the way to go. And I'm not the only one that's drawing that conclusion right now. Um, and so what's producing these uprisings? I think unquestionably it's the ongoing relentless murder of black people, right? Of BIPOC people. It's the murder of Breonna Taylor. It's the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. It's the murder of Tony McDade. And, and definitely it's the murder of George Floyd that just had my stomach turning like so many of you. Uh, but I think it's also the overlapping social, economic, political health crises that are producing this explosive struggle that we're in right now. And it really just struck me that George Floyd was arrested for the alleged crime of passing a counterfeit bill. And I was really thinking about what that meant. What kind of crime is that, right? I want us to think about how that can be considered a crime when this entire country has always traded in counterfeit currency. We have a counterfeit democracy here, right? We have a count counterfeit equality. We have counterfeit liberty, right? Today, some are celebrating a counterfeit Independence Day, right? That wasn't an Independence Day at all for Black people, for Native American people, right? And so uh, we reject that um, whole framework that led to the vicious murder of, of George Floyd. And I think as people defending themselves from the police and burned down the police station and took stuff from stores in Minneapolis in the wake of George Floyd's murder, um, activist and former Women's March co-chair Tamika Mallory, I think, made a really powerful observation in her address to the protesters that we should all consider today. She said, don't talk to us about looting. You are the real looters. America has looted black people. America has looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. We learned violence from you. The violence was what we learned from you. So if you want us to do better, then damn it, you do better. Right? And I want us to consider that it isn't only those historical crimes where we learned about looting, right? I think it's also, we can, we can take a look at the Troubled Asset Relief Program of 2008. What else can you call that but looting? When they took $700 billion in taxpayer money to purchase toxic assets from investment banks. What else but looting can you call the $2.2 trillion Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act, that shoveled money to wealthy corporations while unemployment levels have hit record rates um, not seen since the Great Depression, right? I mean, let's talk about looting. 
over almost 20 years of war in Afghanistan, they have looted some $2 trillion of money that should have been spent on our health care to help deal with this crisis that we're in. Um, we can talk about the $182 billion that's spent every year on furthering mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex, right? And in my own city, they just built a $200 million youth jail just a few blocks from the school where I teach. And you can see when they're getting ready to lay off teachers across Seattle and across the state and across the country, you can see them building that school to prison pipeline machinery ready to funnel our kids right into that facility, right? And I think we should just be clear that the police are not here to fight crime. If that was the case, they would be up in some boardrooms arresting hedge fund managers and investment bankers and war profiteers and the prison industrial complex uh, organizers and these politicians that keep giving them money, right? So let's talk about looting. And I think we should also consider just the everyday commonplace example of looting, which is just the looting of paying workers less than the value of their labor. But of course, we don't call that looting here in America. We call that, we call that profit, right? And I think that uh, we need to start redefining these terms and we need to take on this system. And I say this because I want us to really wrestle with the enormity of the problem. In recent days, many people have learned about the horrors of police violence in the way that, that uh, they really had no clue before. But we also want to end the system that needs police violence to protect it, right? We have to end the violence of structural racism, right? Not just the, the violence of the police, but the violence of structural racism, the violence of capitalism, the violence of homophobia, of transphobia, of xenophobia, and all forms of oppression. What we need is a complete overhaul of the social, political, and economic relationships in society. And so the question that we really have to grapple with is how do we go from a rebellion in the streets against one of the most brutal manifestations of capitalism, which is the police, um, into a mass movement that develops an intersectional and revolutionary and socialist consciousness that sets about seizing power from those who don't deserve it. I'm talking about people like Jeff Bezos, who uh, is scheduled to become the world's first trillionaire. I think they said by the year 2026, he might uh, reach that uh, plateau. Um, I suggest we get busy and have a revolution before any such thing like a trillionaire <laughs> comes into existence. Um, that just blows my mind. But if we're going to defeat this system, I think we also have to defeat another form of violence. We also want to end what Henry Giroux has called the violence of organized forgetting. And I think that's the importance of conferences like this to discuss the ideas that they don't want us to consider, the ideas that are not often taught in schools, the ideas that will help us get free. We need to analyze 
the reconstruction movement and look at what it looked like in the wake of the civil war to have a movement to organize uh, institutional anti-racism before it was shut down, right? We should look at the campaigns from Ida B. Wells uh, against lynching in this country. You know, I had a student that I taught in middle school who was walking down the street here in Seattle, just about 10 minutes from my home, and a pickup truck pulled up next to him, yelled the N-word at him, and then they took out guns and just started firing at him. And thank God they missed. And he took off running and he was unharmed. But the trauma that Black people are going through, whether it's the images of death that are constantly being cycled, or it's their own physical safety that's at risk just living in this country is unreal. And that's why we have to analyze the movements that have taken on the, the roots of inequality and racism. We need to understand how the eight hour day was fought for and won because the corporations never intended for us to have a weekend, to have any free time. And it was only because people organized and fought together collectively that we won that. We need to analyze the general strikes of the 1930s and talk about how we build a labor movement that's capable of shutting down entire cities like happened in Minneapolis and Toledo and San Francisco. Uh, and we need to learn the lessons of the Black Panther Party that linked the struggles against racism to the struggles against capitalism. And I think that we really have to learn those lessons, but we also have to go further than any of those movements did. Because if we have another round of epic struggle like Reconstruction or like the mass general strikes of the 30s or the civil rights and Black power movements, any of those, if we have another round of amazing struggle, but we don't remove those from power who have been misusing it, who have been hoarding the wealth. They will simply reimpose oppression once again, once the movements have subsided. And that's how, you know, we went from the enslavement of Africans to Jim Crow to this era of mass incarceration. We destroyed one manifestation of racism, of inequality, but we have failed to abolish the entire underlying system that needs racism and needs oppression and needs class exploitation to continue. So taking a look at the economic landscape, I think, in the United States gives me hope that this rebellion can, can really deepen and that increasing numbers of people are beginning to draw revolutionary conclusions from their participation in this rebellion. Because I want us to remember that for much of the rebellions of the 60s and 70s, the economy was actually expanding. And I think, you know, of course, many people were left out of the prosperity of that economic expansion, but it can be a real challenge to truly build a revolutionary period when the economy is relatively stable. This rebellion today, I think, comes in the context that is very different. It comes in the context of the, the Great Recession of 2008 and the current uh, mass uh, economic crisis as well that I think have laid bare the fundamental instability 
of capitalism uh, and this in and this system um, is just exposed for its inability to provide for the most basic needs of people. So here in the world's richest country, we have millions of people uninsured without health care in the middle of a health crisis and an international pandemic. We have over half a million people who are homeless. We have 20 million people or more unemployed. We have 45 million Americans who owe some 1.6 trillion in student loan debt. And of course, we know black students who uh, started schools in 2003, one out of two of them have already defaulted um, on their student loans. 46% of community college students were considered to be housing insecure in this country. We have 14.3 million Americans who are food insecure in the world's richest country. So it was certainly the horrific video of George Floyd that brought people out into the streets to protest for black lives. But so many other grievances with this unjust society, I think, provide the basis for us to unite in a multiracial uprising to restructure society. And I just want to end by saying that it appears that the long, far too long, one-sided class war of this neoliberal era that we've lived through is coming to an end and a new era of unrest and of uprising is coming to reclaim the wealth that we produced in the first place. And I think, you know, there have been many um, beginnings of this movement. Uh, Occupy, I think, is an important touchstone to understand because it reframed consciousness in America to have people understand the depths of inequality. And the slogan, the 99% versus the 1% was, was critical. But I think one of the problems with that movement was there were certainly places where activists in that struggle took up institutional racism. But because it wasn't a laser focus of the movement, it created a problem in that if we are going to be the 99%, we have to be united and we can never be united if we're divided by racism and other forms of oppression. But today's rebellion is leading with the fight against racism. And I think that is critical to achieving the kind of unity that will be needed to build the mass movement to truly make the 99% uh, powerful enough to take over uh, society. And so, yes, we want reparations. We want to abolish the police and prisons. We also want to abolish the the conditions that produce violence and poverty and racism. We want to abolish the capitalist system altogether. And the billionaire class had better watch their back because we are coming for them. And there are a whole lot of us. Thank you. All right. All right. You all got me fired up. Um, I am so grateful to share this space um, with my comrades, Amelia and Jesse. Thank you so much to the Socialism Conference, uh, to Haymarket Books, to Jacobin, to the DSA for providing this space for us. Um, thank you, Amelia and Jesse, for what and who you brought into this space. Thank you for bringing George Floyd into this space. Thank you for bringing Brianna Taylor into this space, Tony McDade. I know that Elijah McLean is on our minds. Let's bring him into this space. Thank you for bringing all the victories into this space as well.
Um, uh, before I go on, I need to uh, begin by saying that I'm speaking to you from Massachusetts and Wampanoag land, uh, where communities who predate the United States continue to live today um, and continue to resist. Today is as great a day as any to shout out my Wampanoag relatives and celebrate the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe's recent victory in the courts against their latest, against the latest efforts to steal their land. Please follow uh, what is happening uh, with the Mashpee Wampanoag and let's build solidarity. I want to shout out my relatives who stood up yesterday um, in Ocheti Sakawan territory of the sacred Black Hills in what colonizers called Mount Rushmore. Um, I wanna shout out uh, those comrades who formed blockades when the president was trying to give his speech and made sure that that speech did not go uninterrupted and unopposed. Let us understand that the president's choice to hold a celebration there in that place last night, uh, let us understand that that clarifies that this day, the 4th of July, is not about freedom. It never was. It is about colonization. Please follow the Indian Collective, the Red Nation, and other organizations connected with and building with relatives who were arrested last night. Um, and just shout out in solidarity with all indigenous peoples of this place and the ongoing struggles for self-determination in the face of colonization. And related to that, uh, I just wanna shout out to my comrades in Palestine, resisting what Israel calls annexation at this moment, um, and what we know is ongoing colonization, um, enthusiastically supported by the United States. Solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle, which will win, Palestine will be free. How exciting is it to spend this day uh, this 4th of July talking about revolution, talking about actual revolution that can actually achieve liberation for people in this place and in this world. I feel like I have the easy job now since my comrades Amelia and Jesse already said so much about what is happening today, about the revolts and about uh, revolution, uh, made the case for revolution. So I just want to offer some observations about the struggle uh, that exists now and say a little more about what I think need to be important features of the coming revolution. Before I get to that though, I just want to remind us um, to just a slightly darker time. Um, just two months ago, the dominant conversation in this country among progressives and on the left was about whether or not we need to support Joe Biden's presidential campaign. That was the thing that was dominating um, conversation in left and progressive circles. My, how things have changed. Two months ago, um, in the op-ed pages of the New York Times, were condescending pieces about how we need to support Biden. Now, there are pieces in those same op-ed pages of the New York Times about abolishing the police, about disbanding police departments. Now, I bring this up for two reasons. The first is to highlight the constant pull in the US, probably everywhere, but especially in this country, a constant pull toward narrowing our political horizons, uh, a pull that radicals and revolutionaries must always resist. And second, I want to highlight, as my comrades Amelia and Jesse did before me, the factor that changed things. Um, 
what is the thing that completely upended the political situation and conversation in the U.S.? That is, of course, Black and Black-led rebellion. Black revolt began in this place before the United States was declared. Um, it began when slavery began. It has been central to every wave of progressive change in this country, and it will be central in the coming revolution. What is happening now, I believe the kinds of things that Jesse and Amelia described in the cities that they uh, live in, um, those things are reassurance that revolution is possible, yes, in this place, um, in this place called the United States. Um, there are those who believe that things like universal health care or that free uh, public education, uh, uh, higher education, these things that movements in other countries have already achieved, there are those who believe that that is actually too much for uh, the United States, that that could never happen here. And there are those who believe that that is as good as it possibly could get in this place. Now, I don't want to downplay for a moment what it would mean, what it will mean when we do achieve those things, which I believe is closer than we might think, um, because that will be transformative for the lives of so many of us. It will make this a more livable place. But I believe that what is unfolding right now is showing us that it is possible to go deeper. Look at the statues coming down. That is showing us that there are people in this country who are not only interested in making for a more equal or a less unequal present, but rather there are people engaging with, grappling with the history of this place, a history of violence and white supremacy and colonization and saying, we don't want this anymore. We wanna transform this. We want to uproot this. That conversation is not only possible, it is happening. So we need to broaden our horizons, I believe. I think we need to uh, expand them and raise our expectations about what is possible. Now, with that said, um, I wanna say more about the, the present um, and what is unfolding. And, and again, Amelia and Jesse already said so much, um, but I just want to appreciate what people are experiencing right now, the power of the present, the fact that people in mass meetings in Minneapolis, in Seattle, and elsewhere are discussing what life without police could look like, like, like look like, like not only fighting back, but having conversations, collectively imagining, collectively engaging with radical ideas of abolition and, uh, and, and uh, disbanding police departments. Um, the fact that people are discovering and rediscovering ways of caring for each other that uh, Amelia and Jesse talked about, and the fact that people are learning so much about the history and the current reality of racism in this country, the power of the Black freedom struggle, and about our collective power. Now, um, I want to say a bit more about where we need to go further, even in this moment, and in particular, there's both a necessity and I think a real possibility of going much further to center, not, you know, it, it not only the horrendous violence in the reality of life for black people in general, but to center the reality of black women um, and black trans folks, uh, the violence against them um, and their leadership. 
Um, again, thank you uh, to my comrades before me for saying the names of Breonna Taylor, of Tony McDade. We need justice for them. We need justice for Sandra Bland, for Rakia Boyd, and so many others. Um, and I want to say Black liberation is not complete without women's liberation or trans liberation. And, uh, and express gratitude to the people who remind us of those things. I want to shout out in particular um, somebody who is uh, on Twitter and elsewhere all the time reminding us, no name, Chicago's own um, MC, calling attention uh, to, to the importance of centering what is happening with Black women and Black, uh, uh, black trans folks. And again, their leadership. Because again, when we talk about the abolitionist conversations that we are having right now, who's leading it? People like Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, people like Angela Davis and Mariam Kaba and Kianga Yamada Taylor, and many, many more. Okay, a couple more things about, about the future and about the kind of revolutionary struggle that um, I believe we need to have, things that I need to be, that I believe need to be part of a revolutionary struggle in this, um, in this present and in the future. Um, and so first, when we talk about revolution, it must be a conversation about decolonization and ending US empire. Um, again, revolution does not just mean a change that leads to a more equal United States. I believe it must be a change that leads to the end of the United States as a project. I believe that it must involve the return of the land to the people whose land this has been, who have stewarded it, and uh, who have been dispossessed of their land, indigenous peoples. It must require reparations. It must require the liberation of territories like Puerto Rico and Guam and the US Virgin Islands um, and all the places colonized by US military bases and occupations. If we are not talking about closing every single one of those bases, then we are not really talking about what revolution would mean. And I believe that that conversation is possible and necessary. Related, I believe that this conversation and this struggle must be transnational um, for so many reasons, uh, but principally because capitalism and US capitalism, US empire, they, they stretch, they extend across borders, and therefore our struggle must extend across borders and must be against borders. Moreover, when we talk about actually achieving liberation, the many problems that we encounter when we struggle in this place called the United States, we will not find all of the solutions to those problems solely within these borders. We must, our scope, our vision has to extend beyond them. We must learn the lessons. I mean, the pe people all around the world for so long have fought for justice. And so we have so much to learn uh, that that struggle must be transnational. So I want to wrap up. I am really psyched to talk more um, with my comrades in a conversation. And I just want to say that uh, we have to prepare for revolution not as like this abstract idea, but something that is real and achievable in our lifetimes. In the words of Angela Davis, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. I think that we have to prepare ourselves uh, for revolutionary struggle. And what exactly that looks like every day is a question, of course, that has many answers. Um, it's about getting organized. 
It's about writing. It's about reading. It's about connecting and building relationships of solidarity and comradeship um, and so many more things. Um, but I want to say this. I want to say that socialism is possible. I believe that it must center Black liberation. It must be feminist. It must end borders and it must reorder this society um, uh, in, in so many ways. So, so many ways. Um, a word about this, this particular moment that we're in, because as Amelia said, um, protests continue. Um, in many ways, they are expanding. And in many ways, they don't look exactly the way they did a few weeks ago. We don't know the precise trajectory of this chapter of struggle. But I will say this, in 2014, when Ferguson rose up, you know, that was this incredible rebellion against the murder of Michael Brown. And yes, there were solidarity protests around the country in solidarity with the Ferguson uprising. But it was actually months later when the cop who killed Michael Brown was not indicted, that is when protest exploded. In other words, the Ferguson uprising was just the beginning of that chapter, the beginning of that wave. And so as tectonic as what we have experienced in the past several weeks has been, I believe this is just the beginning, actually. I believe that there is more to come. Um, so I'll conclude by saying uh, two things. One, just to affirm what Jesse just said in his remarks, um, that we need to learn from these previous moments of struggle in our radical history, but go further than any of them. I believe it is possible to go further than them when we do learn from them and learn from living veterans of those movements who are many of whom are, are with us today and in the streets today. Um, and to, to end finally, you know, looking at history, not only the history of this place, but around the world, like every couple generations, we have a shot at radically transforming the world. You think about the 1960s and what that meant all around the world. I believe that our time is unfolding. This is just the beginning. So let's learn and prepare and fight. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you. We appreciate uh, those words, Corey. I'm 100% with you in this struggle. It's an honor to be in the struggle with you both. And um, I want to just open up the conversation now for us to talk about uh, how we begin to deepen this movement and, and get closer to that revolutionary future I think we all want. Um, there's so many places we could take the discussion, but I thought maybe we could just start with um, talking more about the political character of uh, the uprising that's happening right now, um, the, the demands and the ideas that young people are going into the streets with right now. And one thing I wanted to um, suggest to open this uh, dialogue up is something that Barbara Ransby wrote in her book, Making All Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that she points out is that this round of struggle, Black Lives Matter, uh, has an important political character to it in that uh, much of the leading force of this movement is organized by black women and, and specifically with uh, a black feminist point of view and, and set of politics. You can look at the three founders of Black Lives Matter, 
right? And you can look at the, the stressing of intersectionality and understanding the overlapping forms of oppression. Um, and I, to me, that gives me great hope uh, in a way that we are more politically armed to take on uh, the many forms of oppression that will have to be part of the struggle in order to move forward. And I'm, I'm curious um, what you all think about where we're, how this rebellion compares to, to the past ones politically and, um, you know, what are the strengths and are there weaknesses of the political character right now? I would love to talk about um, where I see intersectionality uh, in YDSA um, and just the uh, amazingness that I think is happening when these college students, high school students, community college students um, are calling to defund the police. Um, unfortunately, defunding the police was not a goal that many YDSA organizers held before this. Um, and I think it's part of the need for intersectionality and the need for sort of imagining um, a better world. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, young organizers especially are just sort of um, forming these organizations on their campuses for demands that address the members' material needs, um, whether it be, you know, expanded mental health services, uh, cheaper housing, um, no tuition hikes, things like that. Um, and those are like great and good experiences to fight for. Um, but where intersectionality comes in is seeing um, what the most vulnerable students on campus are facing and being engaged in a struggle and forming coalition with um, people of color led organizations, forming coalitions with, you know, your black student union or your students for justice in Palestine on your campus. Um, and I think that's something we're seeing more and more in YDSA um, as YDSA grows and diversifies. Um, and I hope that this lesson can be carried over um, beyond just this summer and this political moment, um, but into all of our youth organizing in the future. Right on. Beautiful. Yeah, I I think that this is this 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 time we're in is transformative, you know, like, like you said, there are people who maybe didn't think about defunding police before this, but they do now that like, it's, 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 it's okay, you know, to be where we're at when we're there, if we're open and willing to revisit our ideas, right. And to learn. And like so many people are just are learning from this time. Um, so I actually think that that's really beautiful. Um, the, the kind of, just evolution that, that so many people are experiencing simultaneously. And I, I do think that one of the things that is so special about this time is that it is a time of revelation. You know, in, in so many ways, the whole, this whole um, few years with Trump in power has been a time of revelation. You know, like for, for people who, who didn't see certain things, it's, it's revealed now in, in, a, in a new way. But black black revolt always is revelatory, and I, and I think that um, I think that a lot is being revealed, and we're seeing, you know, what intersection what intersectionality. I think one of the things it does is it just that framework just it captures the fullness of our experience. Um, it allows for the fullness of the political dimensions that we need to explore, and therefore. It allows us to 
grapple with just how deep our, liber- our liberation struggles must be. Um, and so I want to I want to return to you know I'm, I'm really appreciating that question that you raised, Jesse. And I want to return to um, the the kind of the, the conversation happening right now uh, about black women and um, and queer folks uh, in particular, you know, and as you said, Black Lives Matter from the start was calling attention to what is happening to black people, um, to black America, to black people beyond borders, um, and has always been led by women, has been led by, by feminists um, who have also called attention to people who, to, to, to women and queer folks who tend to be marginalized within marginalization, right? Like when we talk about black lives, as, in, as, as critical as it is for us to fight for the George Floyds um, and the Michael Browns, you know, um, and the Eric Garners, of course we need justice for all of our, our brothers murdered. And also we know that black women and queer folks tend to be forgotten or even obscured, you know? And it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that one thing that is special about the time we're in right now is I think we actually have an opportunity to overcome that problem, to make it so that whenever we fight for us, we fight for all of us. Yeah. You know, I think that that's that's part of the promise of what it means to have um, black feminism, play such a, a key role in all this. Yeah, no, I'm with you, man. Um, you know, people need to hear the name of Charlena Lyles, who was a pregnant mother here in Seattle um, three years ago, who was just in her own apartment. Um, and she felt someone had, had broken into her apartment. And she called the police and they came and gunned her down in front of her own kids. Right. and yes, we need to fight for all of our brothers. And we also need to know that her name is often obscured and not, uh, not seen. And as you said, like the marginalization, uh, within our movement, we have a great opportunity to overcome that with, with this intersectional lens and understand the way racism and sexism overlap to, uh, push the most vulnerable to the margins. Right. And that's, an incredible moment I think we're in where people are wanting to fight for the most oppressed and completely uproot the conditions of that oppression. Um, And I'm also struck by something that Kianga Yamada-Taylor has pointed out in that there are a lot of white people in the streets for Black Lives right now. And it's an incredible moment where we can help educate a large number of white folks about the depths of this problem. And also that they are motivated into the streets because there's so many aspects of the system that are failing working class and poor white people as well. And that there is a real basis for solidarity in a country that has so many homeless uh, white folks as well. Right. And so um, finding ways to build that kind of solidarity, I think, is, is really important. Um, I wanted us to also talk about the international dimension of this 
struggle that we're in. I mean, it was breathtaking to see the statues of slave owners toppled in London, right? And to see this go international in a way that I, I wasn't expecting and that reminded me more of the struggles of the 60s and 70s, right? Um, but Corey, you talked a lot about we need to end colonization and fight for indigenous rights. And I know, you know, you've fought around issues for Palestine and as well, um, you know, we, we talked about the need for supporting um, students for justice in Palestine. So maybe we can talk about the international character of the rebellion, why the politics of internationalism are so important to move from rebellion to revolution. Yeah, I would I would love to to say a word about that. Um, I mean, the the thing about those those statues coming down in Europe and the the people we've seen on the streets um, in Europe, in Australia, you know, it 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 really does show that it shows a number of things, including the fact that this system is is. Uh, it, it's transnational. I mean, it's, it's you know, like one of the, the, the bizarre mythologies of, you know, that's especially invoked on a day like this is like, you know, there's something about America that is so special that like, you know, in, in the United States is like this self-contained container <laughs> what has been um what has emerged here and what has been produced here is solely of you know this place and the fact that we saw um you know the statues of slave traders come down and you know in bristol and 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 being um uh you know surrounded elsewhere in europe it shows that slavery was <laughs> slavery was transnational slavery was you know, global, right? And that's how capitalism um, emerged. And those those organic linkages, therefore, remain. It didn't. It didn't just end when slavery uh, ended. Um, but it also shows that it shows something about resistance. And I, I do think about Black Rebellion in particular. Like, there's something um, so compelling about it and so resonant about it, right? That, like, you know people in France could say, yes, we are marching for George Floyd, but we're also marching for our people here in this place who have been brutalized by the police. Or in Australia can say, you know, yeah, we, of course we're moved by, by, by the murder of George Floyd, but, and also we need to talk about um, the murders and the brutalization of indigenous peoples in this place. So there's something really resonant about it too. And I'll, I'll end my comics. I, I would love to know what Amelia has to say too, you know, by, by saying this, that there are times when, when, when your scope is so big, sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming. And I know that like in, in been in a lot of conversations um, with comrades, uh, you know, who are part of the, the fight for the black freedom struggle here and also um, part of the Palestinian freedom struggle, like thinking about what it means that there's a revolt unfolding across the, this place called the United States at the same time as Israel is doing what it calls annexation and just thinking like, man, how do we hold both these realities? How do we have the space? And I think that we need a politics that can make the space, you know? And I think that when we do that right, one doesn't take away from the other, they feed off of each other, 
you know? And that, that's what's so beautiful about trans, a transnational vision is that we, we learn, like, I've learned so much from the struggle in Palestine, you know? And I talk to Palestinian comrades who say they've learned so much from the Black freedom struggle here. No doubt. It's beautiful. Um, I think that there's a couple of things tying um, all of us together internationally right now. I think one of them for, for sure is the, the pandemic that we're experiencing and how um, in the system of global capitalism, you know, the people who are suffering, the poor, the working class, the marginalized, um, they're going to be the first to die. And, um, you know, they're really asked to go back to work, to continue working their service jobs where they're getting underpaid, um, all in the service of capitalism. Um, and their labor really just goes um, up and up and up the chain into the pockets of these these billionaires and these multinational corporations. Um, and that's something that unites everybody um, around the whole world. Um, obviously, just capitalism unites us uh, in general all the time. But right now in the pandemic, it's especially, especially cruel. Um, so I think that's something very important and something that has given these protests sort of an extra bit of, of momentum. Um, also, I think that just the development of police um, under capitalism is sort of a worldwide phenomenon. You know, for example, the American police departments, many of them get training from Israel um, and the sort of militarization of the police and the forming of military alliances, many of which were made against communism, against people of color. Um, in order to keep the third world suppressed and to extract resources from them. Those military alliances play out in the same dynamics um, that exist uh, between police departments and policing in different countries across the world, um, where police really have transformed or are um, an occupying force in uh, whatever community that they are assigned to police um, and not, you know, organic members of the community um, deciding things collectively among themselves. Um, so I think that that's very important. The connection that policing has to to capitalism um, and the pandemic are, are both big factors here. No doubt. No doubt. Thank you both for for sharing those connections that we have with people all over the world. And I hope that People will find ways to engage specifically in the struggle for Palestine right now. You know, there was a young man who was chanting Palestinian Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter who was shot down by the IDF recently. Um, and I think, Corey, you're absolutely right that um, the Black struggle has inspired people all over the world. Um, and as well, the Palestinians' struggle for their liberation has been a, a touchstone in the international movement. And it's a barometer of how free we are in the world. And it's time that we rise up internationally to defend people who are having their uh, uh, ethnic cleansing occur um, right now. And so I was really excited to join a protest this week here in Seattle that went down to the police precinct and had a rally for Palestinian lives that made just that connection, Amelia, that, that you made that said our police here in Seattle are trained by the IDF in Israel, right? And they learn those tactics um, of brutality uh, from the IDF. And that's why when the, the protests in the streets 
uh, after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson were so inspiring when Palestinians were uh, telling protesters in the streets of Ferguson how to deal with the tear gas that they were encountering that was created by uh, Israeli companies. And um, we're really going to have to take up this struggle across borders if we're going to win. So we're coming close to the end of time. I thought maybe uh, if you have any last comments, please throw them out. I mean, I'm thinking like if people want to discuss the next steps in this struggle, we know we want a fundamental transformation and we want a revolution. Uh, what are the next steps that we take to embolden this movement? Um, to give us wins and confidence that we can go farther, right? One of the things that I think can be done is kicking the police out of the school near you immediately, right? And that kind of victory can lead people to think, well, what else can we do, right? And if we can organize and live in school every day without police, maybe we can make that a slippery slope to living in the rest of society without police. And so, that's one one focus I think that could be great for the movement to take up on this on this broader trajectory. But um, we just have a, a couple minutes. But I'd love to hear what you think is next for the struggle. Yeah, I would say just please uh, join YDSA. Um, if you just Google YDSA, you can find our website, and there's lots of resources there. Um, if you're a student, you can join um, and start organizing on your campus, organizing to kick the police um, out of your campus. Um, or if you have any connections to any schools, try and get um, a group of like-friended people involved. Um, yeah. Right on. Yes. Shout out to getting organized. Let's do it. Um, yeah, I... Um, I think there's a, a a couple things. I mean, you know, like what both of you are saying is is so right because the thing is, like this this society is so it's so policed and it's so racist that it means that we like the fight really is everywhere. We have to get the police out of everywhere, and we have to we we have to fight racism, institutional racism in all the institutions of of this um, of this uh, society. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of fights ahead of us. And I just, you know, I so appreciate um, just the fact that we, we've had a dynamic where each, it's like, it feels like each city, like cities across the country have been raising the bar. You know what I mean? So in Minneapolis, they're like, we're going to disband our police department. And we're like, wow, okay, can we do that? You know, in Seattle, they're like, we're going to seize part of the city um, and make it free of police. Let's see what that's like. And we're like, huh, maybe that's possible. You know, um, in, in L.A., you know, we were able to win the, 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 you know, the, the city, the, the mayor pledging to cut the, the police budget by 5%. So then in Boston, people were like, let's do it by 10%, you know, um, and we got it. We, we got, uh, you know, we had the vote and it was cut by 2.5%, which was not enough. You know, we want to go further, but also like, you know, a year ago, the idea of cutting the police budget at all, let alone by 2.5%, would have been unthinkable. So I, I just really appreciate the fact that 
the bar is being raised, um, you know, across the country. That's a really positive dynamic. Um, second thing I'll just say is I think we, we have so much to learn. Like this is a time for learning. And even if the, the protests in the streets, you know, when they're not happening every day, that's okay because we have so much to learn and just reflect on like the reflection happening right now. Um, is just hugely significant. Um, so, so, you know, shout out to Haymarket and other, um, you know, other, other, uh, things that we have to help deepen and, 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 and make our, our understandings, um, richer because we need that richness. And, and I guess the last thing I'll say is, yeah, like we should think about how can we always go further? That's, you know, when I was, um, one of the, one of the, um, I, my elder comrades who like recruited me into the socialist movement, you know, one of the things that, that he said to me was socialists don't just show up, you know, to the struggle. We always think about how can it go further? Like, how can we take it further? That's, that's, that's part of what it means to be a socialist. Um, so I, I hold on to that, you know, and I, and I, and I think about, you know, for us thinking together, learning together, imagining together, you know, appreciating the richness that does exist, thinking about what we have to learn in this moment and from history, and also thinking about how we can go further and actually drawing from history and from the richness of this moment to push ourselves further. No doubt, no doubt. Thank you all. I just want to say I'm I'm really excited for the Black Lives Matter at School movement this year um, because I think that there is going to be a new energy. We have begun discussing moving from just our week of action where we make our demands and teach our lessons to also adding a year of purpose and having ongoing fight to uproot institutional racism in the schools throughout the year. And also, I think one of the next steps that we need to take forcefully is rooting this movement in the labor movement. It was amazing to see all the docks shut down um, coast to coast, uh, across the West Coast by the ILWU on Juneteenth. Um, and I think that we need to integrate the, the fight against racism with the working class struggle uh, at, the, at the workplace and in our, in our unions. And I think there's immense power there that we're beginning to see the potential of. And I can't wait to see the struggles to come and to be with you both and and everybody who's at this forum uh, together with in in the struggles to come. So thanks uh, to the Socialism Committee for having us, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Dana for some last remarks. Yeah, um, thank you so much to our panelists, um, Amelia, Jesse, Curry. That was. Not only pure fire, but I think it gave hope for those of us who are in the struggle for revolution, for fundamental change of society. And that was just very, very good for the soul, especially today of all days. Um, and I want to thank everybody who is joining us from all over the country, all over the world in this space. We do hope to be able to gather together in person again next year on the 4th of July here in Chicago for the Socialism Conference. But um, I know from the Socialism Committee, we are so grateful that people took time to be part of the virtual conference today. Just a quick reminder, all the recordings from today can be found at the Socialism Conference website, socialismconference.org. Um, and we are working on rescheduling the panel that didn't live stream. So 
we will send an email with updates on that. And thank you for your patience. And in closing, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And another world is possible if we fight for it. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.